Our scripture reading for this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. You can find it on page 857 of the Bible provided in the pew. Please rise in honor of God's word. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so we have a funny relationship with directives and with advice. I think on the one hand, we oftentimes chafe at it. Um, we can really repel it. 
especially if it comes from certain people, right? (laughs) We don't want advice. We don't want commands from certain people. And yet, we also love it, and we long for it. We look for it. We need advice. We need help. There are so many gurus out there, right, that are being sought out for their advice and their, even their directives. So how many blog posts and articles and magazine articles have to do with these three tips or these five secrets or those seven, you must do this, you mustn't do it, whether it's in the you know, health and wellness area or financial area or you know, whatever it is. So we love it and we hate it. I think also there's a sense in which there's an interesting conflicted response to things that have happened in the past. Um, We can be news junkies, right? We can love to hear the news, all that's happened. Some of you might be news junkies. We have this insatiable desire to know what has happened. But also, I mean, I think even just this story, this time of year, we've heard the news of the first coming of Christ so many times that we can kind of yawn and, you know, wish there was something more meaningful, more kind of practical, applicable. And yet news can be incredibly powerful in its impact on us. So we can be conflicted about advice and directives, but also conflicted about news. We can yawn, but it can also be the most powerful thing in the world. If you think about old newspaper clippings from Victory in Europe Day, when Hitler and the Nazi war machine was finally defeated. I mean, there are maimed soldiers that are so happy. They are in serious pain physically, but they are so happy because of the news. People in sick beds. I even looked this past week. There are people in beds just sick and, you know, in in bad shape physically, and they've got these huge smiles on their faces because of the news. Or, you know, big game. How many people lived on, enjoyed the Super Bowl that the Eagles won? I mean, what was it like in the streets in Philly when they had their celebration? It was mayhem and craziness. News. That's all it was. It was over. But it continued to have this incredible impact. So oftentimes, good news is way more powerful than good advice. Okay, so keep that in mind as we head into a very familiar story, probably for most of us. We're going to look at the passage that Jemmy read, Luke 2, 1 to 20. Because I think oftentimes we incline to advice when actually what we really need is news. Okay, so... Um, I think there's four points. Is there four points? (laughs) Yeah, outline in the bulletin there. Um, You also see the points on the slides um, behind me here if you want to follow along that way as well. All right, so first off, first point, providential political subversion. Look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 here. Start there. 
So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Caesar Augustus, his birth name was Gaius um, Octavius. Okay, he reigned over the entire Roman world from roughly around 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. Um, sometimes you'll see 27 because he, he defeated Mark Antony in 31 B.C., but he wasn't given the name Augustus you know, until 27. So he started to rule and consolidate his power, and it was established fully by 27 B.C., and then he reigned through A.D. 14. So he was the great-nephew of Julius Caesar, who later adopted him and named him his heir. Uh, so again, after defeating Mark Antony, he consolidated this power and launched the over 200-year period known as the Pax Romana, okay, the Peace of Rome, where by and large there was this incredible time of peace and stability um, because of the power of Rome at the time. And this is the Caesar who initiated that. So sometimes it's called the Pax Augustus because it was initiated, inaugurated by this Caesar. So New Testament scholar David Garland writes this, Augustus was renowned for pacifying the world. A great altar to the peace brought by him was erected in Rome to honor him. An inscription from Halicarnassus in Asia Minor calls him the savior of the whole human race because land and sea have peace. The cities flourish under a good legal system in harmony and with an abundance of food. There's an abundance of all good things. People are filled with happy hopes for the future and with delight at the present. It's an inscription from that time period. So there's another inscription. Um, I'm sorry, this is the inscription. That, uh, well, yeah, I have read of one inscription. Here's another one, sorry. Um, so Augustus's birthday was September 23rd, and they decided to deem that the beginning of the year. They're going to start the year with his birthday because the fact that he was on planet Earth as this great Caesar king changed everything. So they governed the whole year based on his birthday. So this inscription goes like this. Whereas the providence which has ordered the whole of our life, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving to it Augustus, by sending in him a Savior for us and those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings, the good news, that have come to men through him, the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with his birth. So that's the decision. Based on all that he had done, they should govern time, the year, based on his birth, which, you know, maybe some of you are putting two and two together here. Um, we don't start the year on September 23rd, but, you know, there's that whole A.D., B.C. A.D. thing. It's a different king that we base time off of now, okay? So, he's called the savior of the whole human race. Peace on earth is claimed, a savior for us to make war to cease. He's called a God. He's the bringer of glad tidings to men. So you can see how there was this 
cult of the emperor at the time, when Caesar's referred to as the son of God or as Lord Curios. And it's into this world, this political context, that the angel of the Lord makes his announcement in verses 10 and 11. So look at verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, Fear not, this is to the shepherds out in the field, Fear not, for behold, I bring you glad tidings, good news, of, a great, of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Messiah, the Lord. And then look down at verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So do you see how politically subversive all of this is? So just a quick reminder, subversive means intending to overthrow or destroy or undermine an established or existing system, especially a government or a set of beliefs. So yes, indeed, both, right? God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom. And the false beliefs in false gods and false saviors and false hopes and false peace, superficial peace, is going to be undermined by the real God who is the real Savior, who's going to establish real hope and real peace for all people. So again, listen to this quote by David Garland. He mentions another inscription from Asia Minor that reveals that the Romans were praised as the saviors of all, and that peace and concord meant submission to the Roman rule and showing goodwill to the Romans through obedience in all things. But for Luke... God is the only source of true peace. So Luke's description of the birth of Jesus, he continues here, in the time of the Pax Augustus, challenges imperial propaganda and proclaims that Jesus is the real Savior, the real Lord, and the real bearer of peace for the whole world. Caesar flexed his, flexed his political muscle with a decree that the entire world had to register to be taxed with the arrogance of one who ruled the world. His purpose was to fill his coffers and to enforce the subjugation of the vassal kingdoms. God outflanks Caesar's decree, however, to accomplish divine ends. Luke provides an example of how God works through the events of history and uses the emperor's decree to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem and to fulfill the Jewish expectation that the Messiah would be born there. So you can imagine, if you were living in the first century and you were reading this, at the end of the first century, like all the bells would be going off, right? Because you would know all this historical backdrop. So the true emperor of the world is using the most, using the most powerful man on the planet at the time, unbeknownst to him, using him like a pawn. Caesar's decree is actually accomplishing God's sovereign decree. The true Son of God is arriving on planet Earth. And the true King of kings and Lord of lords is the true and only Savior. So Augustus might have an impressive army. You know, they can make quite the triumphal entry. They can proclaim Caesar as Lord. But here, out in the field, the army of heaven 
is giving glory to God and announcing the arrival of the prince, the prince of peace. So the Pax Romana is like a momentary playground pact. Just like a treaty on the playground compared to the peace that this child will accomplish. So Mark read it earlier, Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts of the armies of heaven and earth will do this. So, chapter 2, verse 1, Caesar Augustus decreed the census. It was certainly for taxation purposes. It also demonstrated his vast control, you know, the power that he wielded over the populace. But in actuality, what's really going on is that Caesar's decrees are bringing about God's eternal decrees. So his pride is actually bringing about the movement of Mary and Joseph to fulfill this centuries-old prophecy. So in his pride, Caesar is this unwitting servant of the purposes of the true emperor. And it's going to be this humble king born in a lowly shelter, laid in an animal feeding trough to a nobody peasant girl, announced to a bunch of blue-collar no-ones, working third shift in the middle of nowhere that's going to change everything. So the one born this day is the one to whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord even the knees and the tongue of Caesar Augustus. So Rome's peace came by the way of their boot on the neck of their enemies. They forced this peace. And it was maintained by intimidation, required subjugation, heavy taxation. As long as you submitted, everything was peaceful. But God's peace, the peace that this Prince of Peace is going to bring, is offered to all people. And it's not forced by a boot on your neck. It was won by the cost being borne by God himself. So God's kingdom, actually, it upends everything and ensures the care of the poor, not the subjugation and exploitation of them. And we see that even in the fact that this baby is born to this poor, no one peasant girl because it's going to be the poor in spirit who, for whom the, heaven, the kingdom of heaven belongs. So Jesus the Christ, the Prince of Peace, came to make peace through the blood of the cross. We have all gone astray to our own way. We've rebelled against God. We deserve to be judged and condemned. I mean, God is just. He can't just sweep our sin under the rug of the universe and kind of wink at us and, you know, shuffle us on into heaven. That would be a gross miscarriage of justice. But this same God is also incredibly merciful and loving. So how can he satisfy both of those 
attributes, justice and mercy and love, only at the cross. Jesus dying in our place for our sins. So his justice is satisfied as he takes on him all of our sin, even though he's guiltless and sinless and perfect. And then we get, by trusting in him as our Savior, we get his righteousness and perfection and the pardon and forgiveness and cleansing that only comes by grace. So justice is satisfied and mercy and love is extended and peace with God is offered to all people only through the cross. So you see this providence that is subversive of this world's government and system and values and God goes low and upends everything. So, if we were there, though, especially out there with those shepherds, we would have been shocked. We would have been in awe. So point number two, shock and awe. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the sign is more that the baby is in the manger. It was pretty typical for babies to be wrapped in strips of cloth. Okay, But it wasn't typical for babies to be placed in a feeding trough. Okay. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we've already seen God's favor poured out in this little peasant girl, not because of anything in her, but just because of his mercy. And he goes to the most unlikely people and favors this girl Mary. She would have been just ignored, a person of no consequence. But again, it's not the, the great and the successful and the impressive that are going to be in this kingdom. It's those who are lowly and recognize their need. So peace is upon those whom God pours out his grace and they trust him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So Luke 2 starts out with Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the governor of Syria. It starts out with the seats of power at the time, the places of greatest influence. But as God's kingdom comes, as God's king arrives, how does he come and to whom does he come? So here is an announcement that is like the most mind-boggling, earth-shaking, future-shaping news. And it's given to these blue-collar dudes out in the field. Like, I don't know, how many were there? Probably not that many. God decided to give an army of angels announcement to just a few shepherds out in a field. 
It wasn't to the priests and leaders in Jerusalem at the temple. I mean, maybe that's because God knew that these shepherds would be more faithful in their response and witness than the so-called shepherds of Israel. I mean, we'll see in a minute how faithful their response was. But if you're familiar with the way that Jesus clashed with the religious leaders of the Jews at the time, he's calling out their hypocrisy and their selfishness. I mean, they were feeding themselves on the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. You can see how it was fitting that this announcement would come to the lowly shepherds and not to the so-called shepherds of Israel. So it's shocking that this announcement is made to shepherds. But it's even more shocking that it was made at all, <laughs> that this announcement was made at all. So, and what is actually said is shocking and should elicit awe in us. It certainly did in them. So remember, like if God shows up on human soil, and, and if we're really honest with ourselves and in touch with how twisted and selfish and prideful we are, our rebellion like God showing, us, showing up should cause us to tremble. Again, we know the story maybe too well, and we just kind of like blow through this and yawn, and what's for lunch? But we are guilty. We are in trouble. If God shows up, like, oh, no. Nobody's getting away with anything. So we are guilty. We're in trouble. We'll try as we might. We can't atone for our sins. We can't save ourselves. And here is this host of, of heaven showing up. I mean, we might be thinking of like, you know, Linus with the blanket, and this is kind of warm and fuzzy, and we just kind of hear, this is an army of angels. This is like unimaginable force showing up. Actually, that Linus thing, I don't want to give it a bad name. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Also, you can go back and watch it. Do you know that he drops the blanket when he gets to the fear not spot? There's more there than you realize. So anyway, sorry, that was free. Um, um, and he does get it, so and it's pretty, pretty wonderful. So, um, so here's the host of heaven showing up. I mean, we just get too familiar with this Christmas story to feel the weight of what's going on, what's actually happening. So um, David Garland, again, helps us, a New Testament scholar. He, he writes this, the term host is a military term applied to God's attendance. This heavenly army does not come to wreak desolation and terror, even though, again, we could expect that, but to announce good tidings and peace to give glory to God. Peace refers to a spiritual peace between God and humanity. It's not a peace wish, but a proclamation of the divine event. The term evokes both the Pax Romana and the Hebrew Shalom way better than the Pax Romana, and it is the fulfillment of the shalom that just is all over the place in the Old Testament. So this is an army that's just like more powerful than we can possibly imagine. I mean, like when one angel shows up in the Bible and, and appears to somebody, they hit the deck. You know, it's awesome and intimidating. The angel usually has to say, fear not, and kind of like raise the person up 
because the arrival is so fearsome. And this isn't just one angel. This is an army of angels. But instead of wiping out the earth, they sing glory to God and announce peace. They're singing glory to God, not just generically, generally, like that's what they're supposed to say, but because his glory is going to be revealed in the most unlikely of ways. It's his glory that God, the transcendent one, is coming and showing up in utter humility. That's beautiful. It's unexpected. It's glorious. That is the glory of God. He doesn't bark commands from the comfort of his easy chair in the celestial den. He doesn't give orders like this aloof monarch, you know? Like he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He's too transcendent. He doesn't waste his time, you know, in our lowly affairs. No, God is taking on flesh and weakness. He's going to come as this helpless baby in order to save us, to help us. Jesus is going to suffer for us so that we can be rescued and healed from our suffering, self-inflicted and inflicted by others. He's going to be condemned and die a shameful death in utter weakness and shame in our place so we can be pardoned, so we can go free, so that we can have the mighty promise of everlasting life forever with him. So do you see the glory in all of this that's being announced? And really, it's a redefinition of glory. Caesar had glory, but no, not like this glory. And his glory didn't last. Even if the Pax Romana lasts for 200 years, this is like, you know, forever. So there's status reversal and redefinition of, of glory and peace. So shepherds weren't necessarily despised. I mean, in some cases they were, but they were at least very low status people, clear representatives of the peasant class. And again, where does the news go? It goes to them. Caesar can order the whole empire to do his bidding, but he was not told of the birth of the king of kings. So there's this reversal of status, favored status. God doesn't bless the impressive and privileged and successful and righteous. He's going to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin and the brokenness of this fallen world, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The reversal has come. So this isn't an announcement for just some special privileged people. This is a message for all the people. So isn't it the glory and the goodness of God that he made this, like the inclusiveness of his love so loud and clear by declaring it first to the least And the last, late that night in the middle of nowhere. This is the glory of God revealed out in the fields. It was usually revealed at the temple, right? But God's not confined to a building. This is good, good news for all people everywhere. So point number three, good news of great joy for all the people. Look again at verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So just tying back into where we started. This is news, not advice. And that's a really good thing. 
Okay, so advice is, you know, you should do this and not that. It's guidance, recommendation with regard to something in the future. Situation you're facing, it's all about what we should do, what you should do. News is what has been done, what has happened. So this is news, not advice. It's about what God has done and is doing, not about what everybody needs to do. So the gospel is the good news that leads to great joy. Good news of the Bible, the heart of the Christian faith is not a ladder up to the sky. Hey, let me give you some advice. This is how you can make it. This is how you can get in with God. This is how you can, you know, earn his favor. This is how you can... No. It's an announcement. It's news that God came down. Forget about the ladder. I mean, there is so much advice in this world. Like, just go to the bookstore if there's still one, you know, standing, and go to the self-help section. Do this. Try this. You've got to do this. Don't do that. And that can seem so much more helpful and practical. News doesn't seem to help us. But listen, all these do's and don'ts, don't they eventually start to burden you and dog you and nip at your heels? Do, do, do. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing it right. I need to do it better. Well, the gospel is done. God did it. So would you rather have a military advisor to help you figure out how to win at life and fight for your life and atone for your sins and justify your existence and find some self-worth somehow and cobble together some meaningful hope? Or would you rather have a messenger send word that the battle is already over, that it's already been won, that your sins are already atoned for, you're already righteous by grace through faith in Jesus as a gift in God's sight. You're his precious and beloved son or daughter whose future is incredibly bright and you have a living hope that nothing, not even death, can kill. The gospel's good news, not good advice. It's not about what we do. It's about what has been done for us. So the gospel is a message, not a method. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was a really well-known uh, preacher in London last century. He was a medical doctor, um, and then he became a pastor. And he says this, Advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet but you can do something about it. News is a report about something that has happened which you can't do anything about because it's been done for you and all you can do is respond to it. And then he gives an illustration to kind of drive home the point. So if there's a battle and the enemy has been defeated, the general sends word back home with good news. The victory is won. Mission accomplished. So those who hear it respond, don't they? They're relieved. Again, think VE Day. Think about World War II is over. And then they live in the peace and the comfort and the joy of what has been done for them. But if, on the other hand, the battle has not been won 
and the fighting continues to rage on, the commander may send back for more advisors and reinforcements so they come up with new strategies and double down their efforts in hopes of victory. So Lloyd-Jones then says this, every other religion sends military advisors to people. Every other religion says that if you want to achieve salvation, you will have to fight for your life. Every other religion is sending advice, saying, here are the rites, here are the rituals, here's the transformation of consciousness and laws and regulations. We send heralds. We send messengers, not military advisors. The advisor will get you to act, but you'll probably do it out of fear in order to fight for your life. The herald also elicits a response, right? You react and respond out of joy and gratitude. So certainly there are imperatives in the Christian life. I mean, there's even wisdom and advice in the Proverbs, for instance. But as Tim Keller says, if you stand up to preach and tell people how they are to live without telling them who they are, are in Christ because of what he has done for them, you are driving them to obey out of fear, guilt, and manipulation, not good news of great joy. Even worse, what you are implying is that the mission is not accomplished and the victory on the cross has not been won by Jesus. God needs advisors to help him strategize and achieve the victory. That's what you're saying. We're not saying that. Heralds, not advisors. So, some of you are probably news junkies. I won't ask you to raise your hand. Okay? And maybe you have a whole lot more anxiety in your life as a result. And I am not recommending that we put our heads in the sand as Christians and ignore the news, though we could certainly do with a lot less than the 24-7 news sources, you know, try to convince us that we need. So if you are a news junkie, or if you're not, you certainly probably know one. Here's, here's why I bring it up. We would all do a whole lot better if we were good news junkies. Good news of great joy, junkies. Christianity is not about try this, or I suggest you do these things, and your life will go better. It's not about do this and do this and don't do that and you'll find health and wealth and peace and happiness. And it's not about do this and this and you'll get God on your side. You know, he, he really will smile on the people that have really good days more often than not. Oh, God loves me because I, you know, I've had a better day. I had a better week. No, it's God was against you and me and he did everything necessary to remove the greatest threat in our lives. Judgment for our sin. He is actually the greatest threat as the judge. But then in his love, he took care of that and took the punishment on himself for us so that he could be for us and not against us. So it's not about do, do, do. It's about done. So when you're struggling, where do you go? Do the world's gurus with their three steps and five steps and seven steps and 12 steps and 13, does that seem more practically helpful? And there's a place for some of that, certainly. 
But what do we most need? We need news about who God is and what he's done and what he promises to do. That's the stuff that will change our life. Christianity is not just this moral code, even though it has clear and serious moral implications. It's not a bunch of dogmatism, though it has dogmatic claims and they are wonderful and true in accord with reality. It's not a psychological crutch or some early Semitic version of chicken soup for the soul. It's history. Life-changing history. And then not only history, it's also the coming of the future, the kingdom of God breaking in, invading, and making all things new. That's the good news of the kingdom. So how do we respond? Well, look at the responses in the text here. We see a few of them. We see these shepherds. Their response is beautiful. Let us go see what the Lord has made known. It's like, what do you need to do that? Open your eyes. <laughs> go see. You see the belief that's there? This eager desire to see what God has revealed, what God has done? That's a good response. And then when they saw what the Lord had made known to them, look at the language there. In verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So let's go see what the Lord has made known to us. And when they saw it, they made known the saying. So they were faithful witnesses of what they'd heard and seen. So again, that's a really good response. If we really see, if we really hear, if we really know what God has done, this is not something to keep to ourselves. Or how about Mary's response? She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. If you look back at chapter 1, the angel has said some amazing things to her, like mind-boggling, mind-blowing things. Like, what? What is happening? What are you telling me? And then this, from these shepherds, like, can you imagine? Like, they're recounting. Oh, so, I mean, just put yourself in this cave, you know, like, shelter sort of stable-looking thing, and these shepherds just come in after you've just given birth or shortly thereafter or whatever, and they say, okay, so we were out in the field. <laughs> like, this is crazy. It's either crazy or this is unbelievable what God is doing. What is he doing? And so she's trying to put the pieces together. She's, she's just like mind-blown pondering everything that the angels have said. And here's more angels saying more stuff and an army of angels. So let's ponder this glory, this mind-boggling glory, all that God has done treasuring these things in our hearts and asking God to help us not just yawn at this story that we've heard a thousand times, but be blown away at the wonder of his greatness and his goodness and his mercy toward us in Christ. And then 
Verse 20, those shepherds, you couldn't shut them up. They were glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. That's witness language. That's what happens when you hear some really good news. So I close with a quote that I love by a man named T.H.L. Parker. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. So we're going to close by singing. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Oh God, this is good news of great joy for us. And I pray that we would be able to see and hear and savor and thrill at the goodness of the good news. Lord, if anybody walked into this room and didn't know the good news of the gospel, hadn't yet trusted Jesus as Savior, I pray that you would so work in their heart that they would not walk out the same. That they would walk out like six inches off the ground because they heard the best news in the world today. And by your grace, they embraced it. They embraced Jesus and responded like these shepherds. For those of us who have heard it many times, Lord, don't allow familiarity to breed indifference and certainly not contempt. Instead, I pray that you would cause awe and wonder and gratitude and joy and praise to well up because of the goodness of this good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.